We're so glad you're here. We're excited to talk about global missions today. So uh, let us have your attention while we, while we see a video. You know, when Gary told me that, uh, that the, the church was sending a team to South Africa, um, I knew this, this was my opportunity. I've been, I've been wanting to go on a mission trip for some time now, but it's just been through college, uh, getting my career started. I didn't really have the opportunity. But now that I'm settled here in Jackson and, and settled into this church, this Fondren church, uh, you know, I knew God, right when Gary said that, I knew God was telling me, hey, this, this is your opportunity and you need to seize this. When we got to South Africa, I didn't really know what to expect. I thought it was going to be completely third world. And on our drive there, I realized that it's so first to third world. One minute you'll see a house that is so nice in a supermarket, and a mile down the road you'll see a complete shack with a 14-year-old running the household of four kids. I was just completely shocked to see that. To see the way that um, some of those children live and some of the families live in Cambodia, um, in the middle of the city, like the, the capital of Phnom Penh, you know, there are still people living there without running water and without electricity. And, you know, the fact that they are living like that, and I'm over here in America thinking that my life is hard with running water and cable TV and a cell phone and the internet and, um, you know, all this technology and all these things that we take for granted. Um, it's just not fair. It's not fair that we take it for granted and they're over there struggling every day to have clean water or food to eat or electricity or, you know, heat in the wintertime. You know, when we went to the village in Sweetwater, people are living there without any water, without electricity, without um, heat or air. And, you know, they collect rainwater and it, it's collected into a JoJo. It's unbelievable how people live and how much they can live without and how much we live with. I mean, it's just crazy to see that people really are living like this. I was I was in total shock, uh, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I'm thinking of South Africa as being, you know, these kids aren't gonna know God. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to tell these kids, you know, who God is, and they're gonna look at me like I'm crazy. But when I got there, they told me a little about, a little bit about who God was. Um, the boys love to uh, play the games on your iPads and iPhones. They would find you no matter where you were. Um, you could be off in a house on the on the far side of the orphanage. They would find track you down and find you and want to play your games. And uh, that was really that, that was fun. We just enjoyed that. And then the girls, they were not so interested in the games, but they wanted to take pictures. Um, they they loved looking at the pictures. They would take them and then look at them and uh, they wanted to find you in them. They wanted to find them and name all their friends to you. It was just it was a good time, and it was really interesting to see the differences between the boys and the girls. Um, I remember meeting this little dude um, named Sunrose, and he just had the sweetest spirit about him. Um, he would walk around and just smile and sing and play and laugh, and um, he would walk up to him and say, Sunrose, why are you so happy all the time? And he'd say, because Jesus loves me. And... Um, The fact that a little guy who's 11 years old, who goes home and is beaten and lives in filth and dirt, um, the fact that he can sit there and sit, smile and sing and play and say that Jesus loves him and that's why he's so happy is just, it's just outrageous. And 
it just really taught me how to like be humble and be grateful for what I have and not take things for granted. Uh, when I was there this summer, I connected with a young girl. Um, she's probably around 12, 13 years old, and um, we just became very close. And um, she lived in one of the worst areas of the country in a slum. And shortly after I left, she became an orphan. And I continued to talk to her when I was home through Facebook. and. Um, we would just say, I love you, I miss you, and I just wanted to know that someone loved her and someone was thinking about her. When we arrived at Tabitha, I really felt overwhelmed walking into the orphanage and just seeing all the kids and just kind of being in their playland. And it was really pretty awesome how immediately when we started playing with the kids it really didn't take any introduction for us to get to know them and kind of know their story and just develop just a super close bond with each and every one of the kids there and just to fall in love with them. On the last day I had really gotten close with this little boy named Mopey and we had taken him to the park that day and we had gotten back to the orphanage and he was just sitting in my lap and playing with me and I had my backpack with me and he started going through it looking at all my stuff I had in there and he picked up my Bible and it was a little bitty Bible that was pink and orange that I'd gotten when I was like 13 that I brought over there and he started asking me where the story was that we had told that day of David and the lion's den. And so I pulled it out and he's like, will you read it to me again? And I started reading it to him and he started pointing at words and telling me what they meant and stuff. And I asked him, I was like, do you have a Bible? And he said, no. And so I started thinking and I said, Moby, do you want this Bible? And his eyes just lit up when I said that. And so I gave him the Bible and I wrote my name in it and his name in it. And the rest of the day, he carried that Bible around. I had really wanted to see this young girl that I had connected with this summer. And knowing that she had moved away, I was hoping somehow she would make it back for the Christmas activities. And when I got there, she wasn't there. And I have to say, I was really upset. And um, I had people back home praying that somehow we would be reunited. And um, so um, a couple days passed and one morning, I walk to the center, and I walk in, and she jumps out, and she was there. She surprised me. I hugged. She hugged each other. We just, we both cried. It was, it was wonderful. And I found out that here, this 12-year-old child took an overnight, eight-hour bus ride, showed up at the center at 5 o'clock in the morning, stayed at the doorstep until it opened and it was all to see me. The first day I met a little boy named Seth and Seth completely stole my heart. He um, is a little boy that is crippled. He has some mental disabilities but he is the most precious thing. And so the very first day was vacation Bible school and I was holding him, just loving on him and I felt a wet spot. and little sweet Seth had used the restroom all over me. Thankfully, I had an extra t-shirt, but from that moment on, I just had this little connection with this little boy, and my heart, I left my heart with Seth in Africa. 
my main point was just to let her know that she was loved, even though she's an orphan, that I loved her, Christ loved her, and, um, and there are people back home that really care and pray for her on a daily basis. Uh, the, the children at the orphanage were so happy. Um, they didn't understand that they had so little. Um, they were running around with a soccer ball that uh, long ago would have been thrown away here. Um, and it just struck me because they had so little, and we have so much here, and yet we're unhappy with what we have. And they were just fortunate and, and appreciative of every blessing they had. Now I just can't even get them out of my mind. They're the background on my telephone. They're my ringtones. They're um, on my Facebook profile. Every time I pull it up, I'm seeing new things that they're doing every day. And I just, I want to continue to, for them to be a part of my life. excited about you being here today. We're excited to talk a little bit about what God commands us to do, and that is go to the world. There's probably many of you in this, in this room that have either experienced short-term mission trips or maybe have helped sponsor people to go on short-term mission trips, but we really felt as we started this church two years ago, it being very important that we were a church that sent people out. You know, Tim Keller says that God does not pull us in unless he sends us out. And so today we want to focus our minds and our hearts on some of that work. And God has pro pro provided us in this church with some people that already had uh, a calling and missions that we have partnered with that we want to kind of highlight today. Uh, there's a verse in First Chronicles that says this. It says, Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. And I think God has brought us some people into the life of this church like those men of Issachar, that know what to do and understand the times. And I'm going to invite a couple of them up right now. Jason Hester with Restoration Hope and Drew Mellon with The Hard Places. And I'm going to ask them a little bit to share uh, their hearts today about the missions organizations that they lead. We have adopted them as partners of this church, both financially and, and we have uh, supported them with short-term trips. So let's start by just saying a little bit about each one of your organizations and kind of what the organization does, and, uh, and we'll go from there. So Jason, why don't you go first? Uh, the name of our organization is Restoration Hope, and we work in a community in South Africa called Sweetwaters. Uh, Sweetwaters is a township of about 60,000 the HIV AIDS infection rate's a little over 50%. When you look at all the communities in the world, Sweetwaters is literally the epicenter of the AIDS pandemic. There's not another community that has a higher uh, infection rate. 65% um, unemployment. Uh, the population chart in our community peaks at 19. Um, for perspective, the United States population chart peaks at 69. Um, 6,000 kids live in child-headed households. That means the oldest is 18 or younger. Um, abject poverty. Um, I talked to one of our partners this last week, and since November, they've had 200 patients die. Um, 
we walked into that about two, uh, about three years ago on a short-term mission trip and came home and just couldn't turn our backs on it. Uh, the programs that we do when you're working in a community like that, it takes a long-term commitment to three works. You got to bring relief, you got to rebuild capacity, and you got to redefine opportunity. The relief part for us, we have two orphanages that house about 80 kids. Uh, we have 100 workers that are divided between mobile mothers to child-headed households and hospice workers within the community. And we distribute about two and a half tons of food a month to the households that, that we work with. Uh, the rebuild part for us is when you rebuild capacity, it's really inside of the people. And one of the things that studies are starting to teach us is that if you want to transform a community, you don't do it by reaching the adults. When you reach a certain age, you just you, it's harder and harder and harder to, ch to change or to do something different. But the kids in a community are very reachable. And if you reach 60 to 70% of the kids in a community, then you begin to transform the norms. And the best way to reach those kids is with mentors. So we're at work trying to put um, teams of mentors into this community, and we have a plan that, that we feel will let us reach 60 to 70% of the kids with a mentor. Uh, the last piece is redefine opportunity, and for us right now, that's focusing on education. Uh, we go inside the schools, and uh, really, it's interesting. You go 10,000 miles away from a Christian nation, and you can actually teach Jesus in the schools there. Um, they welcome it. And um, when you have a community of kids raising kids, a lot of what we do is life skills training. Uh, what is the role of a man? What is the role of a woman? What are basic morals? What are rights? What are wrongs? 40% um, of the kids, incest and child rape is a real big issue in South Africa. 40% of the kids in our programs think incest is okay because it's a relative that's doing it. If you don't start to change those mindsets, the community's not going to change, and that's what we're at work doing. Um, and then we also do a lot of work with the teachers, just retraining them and helping them understand how to give these kids a good, well-rounded education so that they have the knowledge that they need to live different lives. Okay. Drew? Got some people here this morning. We're going to have to start a lap-sitting policy you, you feel guilty in the next in that, couple of weeks. You feel guilty in that really nice I do. Chair. I mean, if anybody wants to share this, I've got at least another <laughs> space. Um, I'm Drew Mellon um, with the Hard Places community. Uh, we've been around since 2008 when my sister, Allie Mellon, and I always try to clarify when I speak in Mississippi, being from Mississippi, that uh, I didn't marry my sister. Uh, my wife's name is also Allie Mellon, and it gets very confusing at times, and, and we try to just lay it out there from the beginning, um, make sure there's no misunderstandings here. Um, We've been in the country of Cambodia since 2009. Uh, many people, when I tell them about Cambodia, they want me to show them where in Africa it is. Um, and it is actually very far from Africa um, in Southeast Asia, um, right above Vietnam and under Thailand. So uh, in, in the country of Cambodia, when our organization was first kind of getting off the ground, we were looking for... Um, ways to plug in anywhere in the world where we could really make a difference, just kind of be in the hands and feet, really supporting organizations that were already there and just feeling out what the needs um, were. The issue that really stuck out to my sister and to the team who kind of got us started in the beginning 
um, was the issue of human trafficking, but more specifically, um, child sex trafficking, which is the buying and selling of children um, to be abused sexually. It's a forced prostitution. Um, when we did some research and really looked at where this issue was affecting kids, what we found was that Cambodia had the highest percentage of children that were available for sale in the, in the sex industry. And so when we first started there in this little community outside of the capital city, um, it was upwards of 90% of the girls in the, in the community had been sold for sex regularly. Uh, and so it was very much in our face. So what we started doing was just, we called it Kids Club, and it was just a vacation Bible school style program in the neighborhoods where we knew kids were being, being sold. Um, after about a year's worth of time, a local church plan in that community fully could run our kids club, and we were no longer needed, which is exactly what we wanted to happen there. So we started turning our eyes to the next group of exploited kids. Where was the next hub of, of child trafficking in Cambodia? And what we saw was inside the city. So we started a kids club in the city, and all the numbers and, and what everybody thinks about is always females in the sex trade. Um, but when we were on the ground and when we were dealing with the kids there, what we saw was that there was a large amount of boys that were also being sexually exploited um, through the sex industry. And so we did the most up-to-date research as far as boys in the sex trade goes uh, and really felt God leading us to start um, a center that really focused on their needs. Uh, there was a lot of aftercare facilities for girls where they could go once they were rescued out of the sex industry uh, and live and, and have, be rehabilitated and, and get job training, but there was nothing for boys. Uh, and so what we started was a day center, a drop-in center, where as long as they have a safe place to come, they could come to our center and learn English and computer, making them more marketable when they get to working age. Uh, we teach them the Gospels. We got to work through uh, Genesis through the Gospels last year and really just tell them the whole story, establishing who Jesus is. Um, we really try to work. There's a lot of restoration work going on in Cambodia, a lot of people dealing with the, the back end after someone has already been abused. But we really wanted to step in and, and do that, but also uh, work on the prevention end. So we work with a lot of kids in, in our neighborhoods who we consider at risk um, because of who they are and where they live. But we want to prevent as much sexual abuse as we can so that they don't have to go through restoration, that they can be a part as Jason was saying, that changes that country for the long term. Um, we've just recently, this past summer, uh, or this past fall, cranked up our, our girls' version of our boys' center. There's a lot of people on the back end doing restoration, but again, with girls, there wasn't a lot of people on that front end dealing with the... Uh, most of our kids live and work on the streets, so there wasn't a lot of people doing that in our neighborhood with those girls we wound up having 14 to 20 girls at our boys' center every day this past summer, and that's when we knew we had to do something for these girls as well. Keep the mic, Drew. Tell us a little bit about the importance of the local church sponsoring with you, partnering with you as you try and do this work. Um, the biggest need and the biggest reason why that is so important for us is, is financial um, we're not a part of a denomination. We're not a part of a larger organization. We're as grassroots as they come. And so our funding comes from people like you, uh, individuals who decide to give to us, um, churches who decide they want to be a partner. They want to be a part of the work, not just, you know, in name, but in, in deed and in prayer and in, in finances. 
uh, it's very important for us to know to have an understanding of how much money is coming in a month. So if we have a church who is giving a consistent amount, then we can know that we can hire that many Cambodian staff and keep them on. You know, we don't have to keep wondering if we're going to have enough to pay people or if we can afford to expand. Like right now, we have to add more staff for our girls' center because, you know, it's growing. We have more people coming. Um, And just knowing, you know, being over there can be so draining and difficult. It's so important to know that there's people here who have your back, you know, that you're not there alone, that you're not on an island, that uh, you're a part of a larger community, that even if they can't be there physically with you, they're they're thinking about you and praying for you and and just have a mind for what you're doing. Jason, you want to add to that? Um, Yeah, I think the thing for us... um... You know, there's nine of us that lead Restoration Hope, and we had our strategic planning meeting about two weeks ago, and the first hour and a half of that meeting was spent with just us praying for each other and just walking through the things that we're getting hit with. Um, Because the more you get into this kind of work, you figure out there is a God, and he is good, and he is gracious, and he's at work. But then you also realize there's an enemy, and he's alive, and he's active, and he's vicious. And when you step out into this kind of thing, we're not, we're not humanitarians. We're Christ followers. And so this is a spiritual journey for us. And having the covering of a local church means the world to us. You know, when my wife and I came back from Africa, we were a wreck. And this church literally saved our lives. And having that to fall back on means everything. Uh, just like Drew said, there's, there should be within the local church a, a common theme, a common heart. I mean, this is what God does. Sex trafficking of children, child-headed households, these are words that shouldn't exist. And we're determined in the communities that we work in to eradicate that. And it's, when you walk into a fellowship of believers, it's fun because there's a common, there's a common passion for the things that break God's heart. And being able to lean back on that and fall back on that. And the last thing I'll say, like for us, we decided when we went to South Africa, one of the first meetings I had was I stood up in a room full of people and I said, I want you to know that I understand the last thing South Africa needs is another white American. And they all died out laughing. And then they looked at me and they said, we're glad that you know that. Um, So we decided to partner with locals and not start anything on our own. And it's so important to us to watch the church instead of going, hey, let's go do our own thing. It's let's find some people that already are and figure out how we can join up with each other. Okay. Speak a little bit to the mentoring program that you've got started over there. And, um, you know, um, in some of these markets that these guys are in, the the exchange rate is very favorable. And so a little bit given over here could mean a lot over there. So explain a little bit about the mentoring program and kind of kind of your plan for the next few years and funding that. Now, when we started looking at, at putting somebody on the field in Sweetwaters, uh, we talked to some missionary organizations. And just to put a North American on the mission field cost about $100,000. Then to support them while they're on the field is somewhere between sixty dollars and $80,000 a year. That's uh, a big number. Um, when we wanted to do mentoring in the community, there's seven areas in Sweetwaters, and our plan is if we can get five, teams of five in each of those seven areas, that's when we can reach 60 to 70% of the kids in the community. For $25,000, we can fund a team of five full-time missionaries in that area because we're using locals. 
as opposed to $100,000 just to get one couple over, we can put, we can put five full-time workers into the, into the community for 25. And the math just makes a whole lot more sense when you use locals than you do. Okay. Let's speak to short-term trips and the impact, Drew, that that has uh, on your organizations. We heard from those that are in, in our own fellowship that have gone last year when it meant to them. And it seems like it meant way more to them than they meant to the, the cause. But talk about the importance of short-term trips for your organizations. Um, the, the, the common misconception with short-term trips that, that I think you know kind of has existed for a while is just that you're going – over there to take them the truth that you're bringing God to them, but uh, God's been there, you know, way before you even imagined going. So, you know, you're not going in with a savior mentality to to change the country. You're just not going to do that in a week or two weeks or however long you have in the country. You might not speak the language. You don't know the culture. Um, so you're limited in what you can physically do as an individual. Um, but where it's valuable for us is, is several different ways. Is um, you know we have an American staff that live there. They're there in support roles, um, advisory roles, and then we have Cambodians who are doing the actual work. They're the only paid people we have in our organization. Is the local Cambodians that work there. Um, when a short-term team comes, it takes a lot of pressure off of both our American and Cambodian staff. The, the, the team from here can come and, and take some of those responsibilities, plan you know, an event that the long-term people don't have to, to do. So that gives them a chance to relax and maybe focus on something else. It can be energizing, too, to have just new life come in, new people who come in and just pour themselves out um, because it can be so they're just wearing on you to live in a, in a foreign place for a long time. So it really is good to have them come and support our staff that, that are there on the long term. It's also great because some of you have really, really important skills that, you know, people over there don't have. We've had people come and teach guitar lessons. We had the world-renowned Scott, Dr. Scott White from Bellhaven, who's a part of our congregation, come and do some psychology classes with uh, with some of our staff last year and planning to go back this year. So, um, you know, it's great when people come over with a special skill or a gift that they can give to the people there, um, something that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, and I know Jason's going to talk about this a little, so I'm not going to go too much, but just the change that it has on the people that go. Um, you can't go to a place like this and pour yourself out and then come back and be the same. You know, I've seen a lot of people go on trips with me in the past, and when they come back, their life is different. You know, their focus is different. What they do with their money and time are different. They may not ever go back to the country that they went with me to, but what they do here, you know, being involved in mentoring programs and starting up organizations here that work with people in our communities wouldn't have happened if they didn't have that kind of rebirth in their minds um, from going on the international trips. Okay, Jason. You know, I think the only thing I would add to what he says is, you know, for me, looking back over the last four years, uh, the first time I sat with one of our partners, she sat on the other side of a desk from me with her arms crossed for an hour and a half and made sure that I understood how, how much she didn't need me. Um, the second thing was that she said, and we don't want teams. And over the last four years watching, you know, the first team I got her degree to let us bring, she said I could, I could bring four, no more than four, and I had to be there. 
And we've gone from that to me being able to send 12 or 14 people and not even go because the collective of each trip having a good impact and having a good thing, the relationships that it's allowed us to build are huge. Uh, the other thing that it does is it gives us a community of people here who have seen what we do and can help us tell our story. Um, but then just to build off of what Drew said, is that our hearts are God and the world being changed. And you realize the more you spend in third world countries, our country is broken too. And the changes that we see in people that go on our trips, when they come back here, the impact that they have in their lives and in their networks, is changing our world here too. Okay. Uh, what? Let's say there's some people out here that feel like that they're not called to short-term missions. How can they support you, Drew, and even Jason here locally um, uh, if they don't go on the short-term trip? Um, you know, I think the first thing, you know, I used to always say, hey, pray for me, pray for me. But honestly, guys, prayer for me was a throwaway thing. It's a thing you do when you can't think of anything else to do. And even when I was praying about something, I was busy planning about what I was going to do. But the last four years, God has thrust us into things that we can't handle and we can't deal with. And I would tell you more than anything, pray for us. It is the biggest thing that we need. It's what we rely on. It's what we live, what we live on. Um, the second thing is just like Drew, n neither of these organizations were founded by an endowment. Um, <laughs> well, <whew. laughs> um, and we need we need support. Um, I mean, what we try to do is support workers, and it, and it requires little things. It doesn't take big things. You know, I know you read something like Radical, and you come out the other end of it, and you're like, Do I need to sell my house? Do I need to quit my job? And then that step is so big, you can't, you can't take it. But it's the widow's might. It's are you willing to humble yourself to do something small? Because a lot of smalls do add up to something really big. And uh, we, we thrive on that. And then, um, yeah, those are the two big things. For, and then participate with us. We do trips. Uh, we, we both will have events throughout the year that, that mean a lot. And just if you pray for us, if you support us, and if you'll participate in the things that we do, those are the real big needs that we have. We know we got a, we got an event coming up in April, uh, Drew. So give them a little yeah. word about that. Um, our big, you know, we're very grassroots as well, and so our biggest um, chunk of, of funds every year comes from uh, the past three years. It's been called uh, Traffic Jam. Some of you have participated and have heard about that in the past couple of years, but uh, due to some trademarking issues, we are now calling it Walk Against Traffic but you can just add the jam on the end of it in your mind and know that it's the same thing. Um, but it's our biggest event of the year, and it's coming up on um, April 12th. And it'll be here in Fondren. Uh, we're scouting out two different locations. It's been at Sneaky Beans for the past couple of years, and um, we may do that again. We might try something different. We're definitely going to add some new kind of events uh, as part of that that are going to be exciting. Uh, it's been a... A walkathon the past several years, and we're going to still do that. And you, know, you can talk to me later about how that works and how to get involved. We may also add some kind of race elements as well. So um, stay tuned and kind of keep an eye out for information about that. Um, we're also looking for people who want to partner with us financially, not just once or twice, but consistently, because that takes pressure off of the events having to raise so much money. Um, I know right now that we need upwards of $107,000 
just uh, $107,000 to maintain what we've got going. But with the rate things are growing, we're going to have to do a lot more than that in the next year to, to keep up with the amount of kids that we have. Right now, we, uh, we can't even offer any kind of feeding program aside from a small snack and, and some things that are donated. And we really want to be able to feed these kids eventually. Um, so, you know, there's something to pray about, but it's also something you can physically do here in Jackson without ever going anywhere. So, you know, I encourage you guys to definitely, to definitely do that. You know, one thing I really like about these two guys, especially that guys brought them here is they take a holistic ministry approach to this. And that, that means that they meet their physical needs while meeting their spiritual needs. And that's so important in this day and age to, to impact the community. And I'll thank you guys for that. They both also really have full-time jobs, and this is what they do on the side. So these are not things that they're doing for a vocation. These are things God called them to do, and they work so they can do that. And that's just that's, that's very impressive. And we are so uh, privileged to be a part of what they're doing. We've also got a third partner that wasn't represented on the stage, but I want to share a little bit about, uh, and that's the Metamorris Children's Home. I see Stan Troy back there. Uh, Tyler Hendricks and a few have been. And uh, it's run by a, a medical doctor named Dr. Saul Camacho, who's been running it for 30 or 35 years. And he grew up in that orphanage. And, I, and they gave him the education and the things needed to allow him to go to med- medical school, get his medical degree. And as he was growing in his career, in his medicine career, he had an opportunity to run a hospital, to be the director of a hospital there in Mexico. And as he was doing that, he was going to have to spend about six months in Mexico City to train for that. But, but during that time, uh, someone at the orphanage called him and said, Saul, could you please come? And, and talk to us because we need some help. We need some leadership. If we don't have some leadership, we're going to have to shut the orphanage down. And Saul said, well, I'm the wrong guy because I'm fixing to take this job at the hospital to direct it. In fact, I'm fixing to go to Mexico City for training. But uh, he and his wife prayed about it. They decided to take a sabbatical for six months to help the orphanage before he did that. During that sabbatical was in 1985, there was an uh, earthquake in Mexico City and thousands of people lost their life. And Saul saw that as God saying, look, I've got a plan for you, and it's here in the orphanage. He's been there 35 years, making a huge difference with over 200 children in that orphanage. So this year you'll have an opportunity to participate in that too as a partner. So uh, uh, go ahead, Laura, and throw the slide up. We've got four opportunities planned for 14 that we want you to consider and pray about. Uh, We're going to have information down the hall in the atrium right up the stairs to the left that you can go to and sign up and and pick up some information about that. But the first trip is to Cambodia with Drew in the hard places. It's in June the 19th through the 29th. The second trip, last year we had the opportunity to plan a trip to Haiti, but because of circumstances we could not control, that trip was uh, postponed until this July. We've already got eight people. Will and Molly's back there. They're going to lead this trip with with, uh, six other people, but there's room for at least eight more. So uh, it's in Haiti. They build sustainable communities down there after after, uh, the the devastation down there. So if you want to consider that, if that time frame is good for you, we will be doing something in the summer of 14 at the Metamorphosis Children's Home. It's a very affordable trip. Uh, It's almost nothing to go. 
It's almost nothing to go. So if resources are a problem, that's something that you ought to consider. And then uh, in October, we're taking a trip with Jason's group, Restoration Hope, to South Africa. Information is down the hall. We really would like for you to pray about what God's calling you to be a part of that. It might be praying. It might be helping financially with those that can't afford to go. And it might be going yourself. I've got some good friends that were here at the 930 service that God used a short-term mission trip to turn their hearts. And then they did full-time work after that internationally. Jason and Brandy, the same thing. They went on a short-term trip, and God led them to what he had called them to do after that. So who knows what God will do with you if you take the opportunity to do this. We're going to do something a little different as we close today. I'm going to ask Topher and Jay to come back up and get ready for worship. But usually we give you an opportunity to come down and we pray for you, those that need. But today I'm going to ask these guys to stand on either side. And I know there's some of you that have participated in those trips that... uh, would like to come and pray for these guys just to show them that we're encouraging them, that we love them, that we appreciate what they're doing and pray over them. So we're going to ask them to come down as Topher uh, begins to play. And, and please, if God's stirring your heart to do that, please come show these guys some support. I know it's difficult to kind of maneuver around in a full room, but please come, come and do that. Uh, y'all stand and I'll pray as we, as we lead to that time. God, we are just so thankful that you give us the opportunity to join in in the work that you're already doing. You know, your love for us is amazing. And God, we just pray that after a day like today, that people are moved because they see the need and they feel your love and they want to share that with other people, just like many that have come before them have moved be a part of these missions, be a part of these ministries. And we as a church, God, we want to be obedient to your call to go. We certainly know that there's opportunity right across the street and we want to do that. But you also call us to go to the world. And I just pray today that people in this room would strongly consider how you would use them in that effort. Just like your word says, you anoint us for this. It's not something we've got to do on our own. It's something that you have called and prepared us to do in our hearts. God, I just pray that you'll give us the courage to step out and be a part. Thank you so much for loving us. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we just claim that love today. In your name we pray.